Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, the Peacebuilding Podcast. It's great to have you joining us. Today, I have with me a super interesting guest, Priya Parker. And this summer, she published a book called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And when it came out, my facilitation colleagues and I basically commiserated with each other that we hadn't uh, written the book ourselves. It's really excellent, and I recommend it. How we meet and how we gather, of course, is critical not only to the quality of our lives and connections, but to our ability to build a more innovative and peaceful world. Of course, this is the focus of the Peace Building Podcast. It's, you know, what are the best tools, techniques, processes um, that can build common ground in complex systems. So really grateful to Priya for having written this book and having done such an artful job in doing it. In addition to being an author, uh, Priya Parker is a facilitator and strategic advisor. She helps activists, elected officials, corporate executives, educators, philanthropists create transformative gatherings. She works with teams and leaders across technology, business, the arts, fashion, and politics to clarify their vision for a future and build meaningful purpose-driven communities. Her clients have included the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, the World Economic Forum, meetup.com, the Union for Concerned Scientists, and Civitas Public Affairs. She began her career and has been deeply impacted by the field of conflict resolution where she's worked on race relations on American college campuses and on peace processes in the Arab world, Southern Africa, and India. So my favorite, uh, some of my favorite parts of this episode, the first is just simply who Priya is and where she comes from. Um, Priya Parker. Priya is from her mom, who is a South Asian Indian, and Parker, her dad, a white Anglo-Saxon American. And as she describes it, I think her mom uh, is you know, vegetarian, much more liberal, Was comes from families that worshiped cows. Her father, much more from an evangelical Christian background, much more conservative and from a family that I think was a family of farmers in the Midwest that slaughters cows. I hope I have that right. Um, but as a kid, um, I think they divorced at nine and Priya spent her childhood going back and forth between these two very different worlds and being very uh, much immersed in both of them. So a great learning for somebody who wants to work interculturally, which, of course, most basically all gatherings are these days, and really be able to figure out how to make things work well. The aspect of this interview that I think I find most deeply transformational for me and that I really appreciate is um, thinking so intentionally about creating temporary alternative realities and rituals and processes, experiences that actually help people really experience those temporary alternative realities. Um, Priya talks about how um, in the course of writing the book, she interviewed a number of people and um, that the most powerful rituals come from more monocultural types of groups that I know for myself, a lot of those rituals don't work for a lot of us anymore and don't necessarily work, especially if we're trying to bring 
Uh, we're trying to create communities ourselves that are multicultural, or we're trying to create gatherings that are multicultural. So how do we intentionally create a sense of ritual, uh, maybe perhaps even a sense of the sacred, um, that is the thing that ultimately will um, really allow people to um, connect, make contact, transform, and move into a different state. As um, we know as facilitators, as Professor Hawkins on one of the earlier shows talks about, if you can't make it happen when you have people in the room, it's not going to happen when they go back into their own uh, realities. So we as facilitators have to create a very impactful, meaningful experience for people. And Priya, um, probably as much as anyone I know, has really talked so eloquently about how to do that. So um, we also spent a lot of time talking about, as part of that, talking about um, paradoxically, how do you make a space safe for conflict, um, in the words of Bill Urey, uh, because, of course, unless people can really uh, come together and share their differences, ultimately, they're not going to be able to transform to a different way of being together, a different understanding of what those differences are, and perhaps, and hopefully a, a more innovative way of being together. So I hope you enjoy the episode. There's a lot of insight here and uh, see you on the other side. I bring you with no further delay, Priya Parker. So Priya, I am so glad to have you. Uh, your book is just amazing. I think I mentioned in my uh, letter to you that when it came out, so many of my colleagues and I commiserated about how we wished we had written that book. Um, <laughs> That's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really an excellent book. And how you framed it is is so excellent. Um, I mean, it's way beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about, which is really more the conflict resolution end of facilitation. But it's it's all related in the end. So I just really... Yeah, loved your book. Thank you so much for for writing it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I uh, always like uh, you know maybe I like to uh, rub heads with Krista Tippett or something, but I I, <laughs> I like to start or I always like to ask my interviewees. I don't know if you identify with the word peace builder, but you certainly describe yourself as a conflict resolver. And I'm just curious, uh, actually, I, you know, I've read it, but I'd love to have you tell the listeners what planted the seeds in you to do the work that you do, to be interested in bringing people together, to be interested in being a peace builder, if you identify with that word or a, a conflict resolver. Yeah, I, I'll start with language. I, I think language is a tricky thing. And when you ask whether or not I identify as a peace builder, I, I thought about it. And what I've seen in, uh, in at least my field is that like any field, a field evolves. So what used to be called the you know, diplomacy field at some point starts to expand beyond state power and is starting to be called the conflict resolution field. And then at some point, somebody says, it's not actually resolving because it doesn't you know, that implies an end. Um, it's a dance, it's a relationship. And so then it becomes the conflict transformation field. And then there's this other, you know, branch that's the dialogue field. 
And I come from a very specific methodology um, of sustained dialogue by the, by the, the sort of father of that is Hal Saunders. And I realize that when I say I'm a dialogue practitioner, no one has any idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And so for shorthand, I say I'm in the field of conflict resolution. But I do that in order to find the Venn diagram that's the closest proxy to fit what I do to what somebody outside of the field will understand. And similarly, I would identify insofar as being a peace builder in that it's a proxy for being part of work that is interested in the technology of relationships and believes that you can examine a system at the level of relationships as well as at the level of collective and believe that you can transform it. So if that's what peace building means, sign me up. But I think that peace builder in and of itself as a, as a term makes me cringe a little bit because I think within a system, peace is not sustainable if it does not have justice. And so from a language perspective, if we were being pure, I would say that I'm not a peace builder. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you have, I mean, I've said to my listeners, I definitely have a, you know, I think, uh, and many would agree with me that we actually really can get to a place where we do not need armed conflict on this planet, that it's really outmoded. Um, and I, because I've been a facilitator, conflict resolution person, a negotiation skills person for so many years, um, I'm always impressed by how, what can happen maybe at the microcosmic level between people when you get them in the room. I think that's one of the things that's motivated me to do this podcast is how you bring people together has just a whole lot to do with what can happen, which I don't need to say to you, um, Mm -hmm. and can make... um, the room safe for conflict. You know, like Bill Yuri is always talking about, you know, how do we in fact create a world that is in fact safe for conflict? Mm-hmm. We're not going to get rid of it. I love that. We don't want to get rid of it, but we need to make it so that it doesn't blow up. Um, yes. A friend of mine recently said to me, such and Sony, he said, um, if we had more conflict in the world, we would have more, less violence. Yeah. Yes. That's so much it. So I, I want to go there, but I do want to first give you. Uh, the opportunity to answer the the first question about what planted seeds in you to do the kind of work that you do. Um, I have a specific answer in mind, but yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I, I, you know, at some level, it's it comes down to um, my story of origin, as I think it probably does for so many of us. Right. Um, I was born in Zimbabwe. I um, my mother's Indian and my father's white American, and. They, my mother's a, um, an anthropologist and my father's a hydrologist. And for about 13 years, they were married and were kind of each other's adventure. They, we lived in um, Africa and Southeast Asia and Europe and then eventually moved back to the U.S. And I, they settled in Virginia and within a year, they were um, separated. Within two years, they were divorced. And within three years, they had actually each remarried other people. How old were you when that divorce happened? Um, I was about nine uh-huh. and sort of nine. So there's mm-hmm. a separation and then it's, it's a process <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, um, and they had joint custody and they lived a mile apart. <laughs> so every two weeks, um, mm-hmm. I would go back and forth between those two homes and I would leave one home and, um, it was my mother's home and I would leave this kind of Indian, British, new age, you know, you e meditation, you know, filled incense, you know, literally burning vegetarian 
world banky, progressive liberal household. And I would go a mile away and enter my father's house. And it's a white evangelical Christian, conservative, um, meat eating, twice a week church going, you know, Trump voting, climate change skeptic family. And it's unbelievable that they married. It's so interesting about these kind of marriages. And then so interesting for you, actually, my my two nephews have this kind of like extreme parents. And uh, boy, is that a, a great laboratory for intercultural communication. <laughs> yeah. And conflict. You and know? conflict <laughs> resolution. Yeah. And so I think my, I think from a very early age, I understood that uh, even when people believe, particularly in my story, uh, evangelical Christian, um, even when people believe that they have sole access to the truth or truths, there's always a different universe that um, that does not share those set of assumptions, that worldview. And what does it mean when we for any reason, either need each other or want to be together or want to be part of a community. Um, and for me, it was a level matter of survival. I was fully a part of both families. And, you know, I joke, my name is Priya Parker. And you yeah. can guess, you know, right. which side is which. Right. And, and I really was fully a part of both families. And I grew up with my mother every winter, I would go to the Theosophical Society and Adyar for their international convention because my Indian families has been kind of three generations of theosophists. And then on my father's side, I'd go to, you know, Christian evangelical summer camps. Unbelievable. Um, Do you have a middle name, and, by the way? Uh, Narayan, my mother's my mother's maiden name. So she got a little bit of extra. <laughs> well, it kind of balances out. She got two of the three names, but the last name is, yeah. you know, is big. father's. <laughs> yeah, big, okay. <laughs> so, um, and then I went to the University of Virginia and um, the first question people asked me was, what are you? And I didn't know what that meant. And I quickly understood that it meant, what race am I? And the question bothered me. It, it bothered me because of the sequence that it came. It wasn't the fifth question. It wasn't the 30th question. It was the first question. Yeah, it's a pretty confrontational, weird way to ask somebody. Yeah, that. and it's kind of a, um, it's basically a, a, a lens, right? So it's, how do I place you? What is, clearly in this context, there's a lot of meaning attributed to whatever race my, I might be. And in that context, I'd never been in such a kind of racialized climate before. And so I, I became very interested in, um, in race and particularly um, in an identity. And I learned about a process called sustained dialogue. I was, I was upset by the, by the kind of climate of race relations at UVA even then. When was this? Um, that was 2001. Okay. 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And um, UVA has a very strong sense of student self-governance and it's, that's actually true. So, um, older students would hear me kind of complaining and they said, you know, do something about it. Mm -hmm. Like you figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so I started researching, I took like every class I could on race and identity and immigration and race and Southern history and, um, the history of segregation and integration at UVA. And then I, I came about this process called sustained dialogue and it really interested me because it looked, it looked at how can you transform relationships on the ground to begin to change a culture? And um, it was started, but it was kind of created or codified by, um, by Harold Saunders. And he was Kissinger's assistant secretary of state. He helped draft the Camp David Accords. He spent 40 years in government with, I think, three or four different presidential administrations. And basically, after he left government, he realized that while he kind of literally brokered peace between nations, 
that things on the ground didn't necessarily change in terms of citizens' relationships and perceptions of each other. Right. Sort of the, what I call the, the famous person model of mediation. You do it at the top, but you don't really deal with any, of the, 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 any other parts of the system. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so he began to use his kind of power and authority as a kind of trusted, respected statesman and began first doing facilitating backdoor, I can, what's now called probably track two right. dialogues between Soviets and, um, and Americans during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And it was the longest bilateral uh, dialogue between that both governments knew about, but weren't, you know, they, it wasn't official. And his co-chair was Eugeny Primakov, hmm. um, who, you know, ended up becoming the first, uh, I guess <laughs> I should know this, prime minister um, yeah, so. of Russia. Mm-hmm. And what he saw, and they met for 13 years. Um, they being who? Um, they being the same group of Americans and the same group of influential Russians. Yeah. So the idea of the process was that if you can, um, from a social capital perspective, map influential people within the two kind of communities, in this case states, and transform their relationships with each other, could you begin to then shift the levers of power on both sides and and kind of build a capacity between these two trusted powerful groups to you know break the impasse and he ended up after the you know fall of the wall and after the cold war he started to take this process and he experimented in tajikistan to see if you could in the middle of a war um, bring together interested parties to again commit to a sustained dialogue which basically meant we're not committing to just one talk do we actually, as a precondition, no matter what happens in the room, agree to meet 12 times or 15 times? So Priya, could you, because we do sometimes like to dig down, not too deep into the actual uh, parameters of this process, could you just give sort of a skeletal outline of what sustained dialogue looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So sustained dialogue is basically um, a process. It has, you know, it has five stages. Um, and I'll just say, um, Hal codified this after kind of 15 years of watching these dialogues unfold. So he looked at the natural process that these groups went through when they committed to coming back together over and over and over again. And he just basically gave language to it. Mm. So he always would say he passed away two years ago, but he would always say, this is not something that I invented or made up. This is me watching very closely, you know, sort of as the best sociologist or you know, David Cantor doing this with um, you know, family systems, and then watch what unfolds so that it could be perhaps replicated elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But it's basically a process where groups of citizens um, on a different side of the con- of a conflict, particularly around racial, ethnic conflict, but it can be around, you know, around anything that's deeply rooted, decide to engage in dialogue and commit to meeting um, intentionally over an extended period of time. So at UVA, we started it um, we actually started it September 10th, 2001, which is kind of crazy. Mm. We launched at UVA, 9-11 happens the next day. Wow. And psychologically, <laughs> mm-hmm. psychologically, and I think this is part of the power of you know, what I think this field does, is even though we actually hadn't had a group yet, we sent a letter to the community on September 10th, 2001, launching effectively sustained dialogue. So what does that do? It creates a psychological container in an environment and an awareness that this thing exists. And so when 9-11 happened, it became this kind of, again, container that people's um, activated emotion and fear and everything that happened after 9-11 kind of got channeled into kind of the right place at the right time. And it exploded in terms of interest and began to spread to dozens of other 
campuses. But basically, um, you decide to engage the first, exp- uh, and you and you kind of map out the right people to be part of this community, part of this dialogue. And the five stages are you you decide to engage, um, and then you start with stories and experiences, and let people kind of download what what their experience of the problem is, and really deeply, deeply, deeply listen on both sides, and begin to map what are the actual patterns, what are the historical patterns, what are the current patterns, so that you're building and transforming the relationship through people's stories, but you're also providing an analytical lens to what is actually happening here. What are the patterns of interaction? How many you know, as we were doing race um, conversations at UVA, how many black students were actually stopped by policemen versus white students? And when you start hearing, you know, the stories over and over and over again, if you're actually listening, white students would have an aha that, wow, my relationship to the police is not the same for my peers. Right. On this campus, let alone in the country. Right. And then the, philosophically, the idea is if you can build enough trust and transform relationships between the communities and begin to use their experiences as a vessel to map what's happening institutionally, you can also begin to build the capacity to um, figure out what are the obstacles to change, what are the um, opportunities for change, what are the structures that need to happen, and then move to action. And I, I think the last thing I'll just say that I most take from sustained dialogue, which I, you know, I don't practice it anymore as a, as a pedagogy, um, but it deeply, it's kind of, it, it's all over the book, but kind of the DNA of it is all over the book, mm-hmm. uh, is Hal Saunders' model of relationships. And what's so interesting, and I think one of the gifts that he left us, is that he tried to find a model that defined what is a relationship <laughs> and what is a group relationship. And he was always interested in saying, if you don't know what something is, you, it's very difficult to understand what it is you're trying to change. Mm. And he actually defined it, five elements that he saw kind of over and over again of elements of a group relationship. And they are, should I name them quickly? Or I'd love to hear it. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the first is identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, he defined identity as all of the experiences that made you who you are, that you attribute kind of social meaning to up until this very moment. And I love this uh, definition in part because within that context, if you're deeply listening, there are certain elements of identity that are broadly fixed because we want them to be fixed. Um, but there's also a huge amount of identity that is still being shaped and molded. The, you know, the part of the definition is up until all of the experiences that shape who we are up until this very moment. So the idea is that like an experience can begin to change your identity or your, your, the meaning that you attribute to it. Um, so one of the groups I looked at in the book was seeds of peace and the summer camp that brings together Arab and um, Jewish teenagers. And part of their question is if you over the course of three weeks in a summer camp in Maine, um, transform you know, two groups, identity and sorry, relationships. The question that they're really asking is, can you also add an identity that circum, which in this case is seeds, they call themselves seeds, the camper seeds, that circumvents or helps provide a second narrative to Jewish or to Arab or to Palestinian or to Israeli um, that might change my pattern of interaction when I'm outside of this context. Mm -hmm. So the first is identity. The second is power um, and your ability to actualize your goals. Um, He defines it not as power over, but power with. Mm -hmm. The third is interests. The fourth is patterns of interaction. And this one I love in part because it's probably the most analytical one. You can literally map kind of historically and also in real time in any system. What are the actual observable patterns of interaction in a system? Like how many 
racist op-eds were actually written. I mean, you could quibble over what's racist and what's not, but how many marks of graffiti were on the wall? So observable patterns of interaction. Where do people sit in the cafeteria and or online? The power of data. <laughs> the power of data. Yeah. But, but then it's also the power of meaning to ascribe, you know, and mm-hmm. interpret that data. Right. And then the fifth is uh, perceptions, misperceptions, and stereotypes. Hmm. And so we were trained as students, both in these five stages, which is sort of the logical flow of being able to anticipate what actually happens in a group when you go through a process that is designed, um, and as well as beginning to have some intellectual rigor around how do you begin to transform relationships and how do these five elements interact with one another. And I, to this day, in all of my work, I particularly deeply, deeply, deeply use and think about as an analytical tool, the relationship model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you know Bob Staines and that that dialogue model that that originated out of the abortion controversy in Boston mm-hmm. long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a guest on the show a while back. Um, was that I, the Civil Conversations Project? Uh, no, Public Conversations. Public Conversations. Public Project. Conversations yes, yes, Project. I love work. Yeah, and um, really not trying to reach a resolution. Just um, what was really really moving about some of what happened there is, you know, very extreme pro-life, pro-choice people coming together over quite a long period of time and ultimately really becoming friends and never changing their position, but really, really developing relationship with each other. Mm. So, all right, well, I, we could talk about that, but I want to make sure that we, um, because time flies on these things and, <laughs> and uh, there's so many rabbit holes we could go down, but I um, would love to have you focus in on some of what you think it takes to um, ironically make the room safe for conflict because I, I'm a very, uh, I've had some deep gestalt training in my day and I, I don't believe you get a shift or change unless you really have contact uh, between people. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many situations where people actually never engage in what the issue really is and so therefore are not able to really transform. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I would love to hear if you either have a specific story or you're thinking about how do you how do you create a space that is safe mm-hmm. for conflict? Yeah, I thought a lot about this, and I think it depends. <laughs> um, and I think one of the ways I think about it is: Are you helping them to make it safe? And it depends on the on the situation. Are you trying to help them? face what is within the context of the conflict or does it need to be removed from that context and to create a, to use my language, a temporary alternative world. And the, the thinker that most influenced my thinking on this is Mary Douglas and her writing on kind of purity and danger. And she was an anthropologist who um, looked at how particularly different shamanic traditions dealt with conflict. And one of the things that she saw over and over again was that in in the context of the tribes that she looked at was that the role of the shaman um, was often to create this, that that conflict and other forms of um, human relationships were considered dangerous and are dangerous. They can, you know, they can lead to a lot of different you know, bad outcomes or. I mean, I think they're dangerous because people's uh, inability or, or, 
uncertainty or whatever about how to manage it, you know, mm-hmm. how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so what she saw was that um, the shaman would basically create this kind of alternative space. Ritualistically, they would come in and create and, and do opening rituals to to kind of change psychologically and physically a space to have a conflict. They would put people sometimes in different, like actual states and, and trances. But what she said was that- Oh, literally different psychological states. Yeah, different psychological states, but sometimes also just different, um, different roles that people were playing. And what she said was that um, in any context, when something is considered either dangerous or, um, or, impure, to use the language that she uses, we need to create alternative moments and spaces to be able to safely deal with that danger. And one of the people who I interviewed for my book, whose work I deeply admire as a young woman named Ida Benedito, and she was very influenced by Mary Douglas as well. And she creates these um, under, she's an underground experience designer. She calls herself a transgression consultant, which I love. <laughs> I have no idea. What is that exactly? A trans- I know. She, the way she talks about it, she says she helps people deal, face and change their own relationship with risk. And she asks, and I, and she does, and and some of them are kind of fun. So she does this thing called the Timothy Convention um, every year with her with her former business partner, where they invite a hundred people to show up at the Waldorf Astoria in black tie um, for a fake conference. It's literally a fake convention, and um, they're given thirty prompts for, over the course of an hour to fulfill, and they get different points for different prompts, and they're all slight social transgressions. So things like there's a wedding on the third floor, go up, crash it and give a toast to the bride <laughs> or, you know, figure out a way to take a selfie in a, in a guest's robe. You know, I don't know how you get there, but like, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways to figure it out. And, um, and they're not illegal, but they're, they, she creates sometimes physical trespassing. She creates environments where people have to consciously and choose to face their, their fears in some way or the other. And she does this with corporate teams as well. And she, I, say, I said, Ida, what can we learn from you? And she said, you know, every time I design these experiences, I ask myself four questions. First, what is this group avoiding? The second, what is the gift in helping, helping them face it? The third, what is the risk in helping them face it? And fourth, is the gift worth the risk? Hmm. And to come back to your original question, I think t- in order to make rooms safe for conflict, Enough people have to agree or believe that the risk is worth, the gift is worth the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give an example of, uh, um, this is in the book, of a, of a context I was working in where I walked in, I was asked to help a senior team make a decision that had been kind of bubbling for a long time about whether or not the future of their firm should be um, basically the vision of their firm. and. They were an architecture firm, and they were basically trying to figure out, do we want to continue to be an architecture firm, or is this an outdated identity, and actually the future of the world is design? 
And, and I, was, I was literally brought in to help them like figure this out, to create a visioning around this. But the problem was that there was, there was real conflict, meaning there was real disagreement and passionate disagreement in the room um, around which direction the firm should go. And, and it had real consequences for the firm. I mean, it was, 90% of the firm was architects. If they made a decision to move to design, that would change you know, staffing. People would probably get fired. Other people would get hired. I mean, how, many, how many people in this firm? Um, it was 800. Oh, wow. Okay. And I walked in and I worked with them a bit before. And this is a group of 40 people, very senior partners throughout the company. And the people who, if they agreed on something throughout the company, had enough social capital that like this decision could be made and that there would be buy-in for it. And the first couple of hours, I, I created a design that was what I would call still in their context. So I tried to create prompts where they imagined themselves, you know, 20 or 40 or 50 years in the future being one or the other and reverse engineer back. So, you know, in 30 years, your primary source of revenue is, uh, is a subscription model. What does that mean? And how do we get there? And in their context, like it made no sense, like a subscription model. <laughs> and as they would start to discuss it and get a little bit into the conflict, people would shy away from it. Like basically they were very polite and it was this like interesting intellectual exercise. Mm. And during the break, my client came up to me and said, Priya, we need more heat. Like we need, we need more heat. We need to, we need a neuro language. We need contact. And so we decided to, we kind of brainstormed and decided that, uh, you know, honing um, Mary Douglas, we needed to create a temporary alternative world so that we could deal with this quote unquote impurity in the system. It's not an impurity. I mean, it, it, using that anthropological language to allow them to change the norms. Basically, their norms of politeness and civility were so strong that it was blocking their ability to, to debate. Mm. And so we, <laughs> we photoshopped, we quickly photoshopped two of the um, architects' like, photos onto two huge wrestler bodies. Um, it was a primarily male team. And um, they came back and we put Rocky music on and we, had design- we like, turned the room into almost like a wrestling rink. This is great. Um, this is fantastic. And took like, two white towels from the bathroom. <laughs> um, they came in. They didn't know. There was two posters and in one corner, it was one architect's head, like posted to a to a body on a poster, and the other, like a wrestler's, you know, like physique. And in the other corner was another, and it in huge letters. One said the body, and the other said the brain. And basically, the body was an was you know a proxy for let's be nuts and bolts, brick and mortar architecture, and the brain was let's be a design firm. Right. And they had no idea what was happening. And I kept it kind of moving really fast and, and um, you know, didn't, didn't look, uh, you know, worried and basically created a game. I created an alternative space in the, in the tradition of game designers. And I said, okay, um, welcome back. We have a um, cage match. And um, in one corner is the brain. And we called one guy over and the other is the, the, the body. And fortunately, and we kind of knew this, we chose two people who we thought would be game and who have, you know, who were charismatic and who could articulate the arguments well, but we, we kind of hoped they'd go with it. And they did. So then they started, and then they started playing, you know, like rolling their neck around and we assigned two coaches and the coaches threw towels over them. And again, thinking about the shaman, like we're, we're creating different physical symbols for a specific moment in time that in the language of like American context is sort of a game, um, but basically using the power of ritual to make the space safe for conflict. Mm. To go back to your, you know, mm-hmm. your question, mm-hmm. and 
at that moment, no one knew, did I mean like, a phys- were they actually going to fight? You know, you're, 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 as facilitators, you're kind of always playing with the temperature gauge and you, right. you know, over, it takes years and years and years. And sometimes you turn it a little too high and sometimes it's not high enough, but you, you know, so I was trying to turn the temperature gauge high enough to break them out of their patterns of civility, to add some humor to it. And then once I got them over that abyss to like not allow any moment for them to like think twice. And so we quickly yelled out the instructions. Okay, in the corner, one section, you have two minutes to say the strongest argument of the body, why this firm absolutely needs to be an architecture firm for the next 70 years. And then, the, you, know, and then you get a rebuttal, why this firm absolutely needs to be the a design firm. The and, and can I ask you, your internal state while this is happening, are you, are you calm? Are you freaking out? Are you... <laughs> <laughs> my internal state is probably at this point matching my external state, uh-huh. which is... I just kind of put on, I mean, in a way I was playing a role. I like, in my mind, I was a referee uh-huh. and I, ca- I come from softball. Like I played, <laughs> I played like, you know, travel team softball through high school um, and particularly through middle school and softball is a very vocal sport. And it's a sport that more than I think most other contexts and games, at least in the American context, the players are also the cheerleaders, quote unquote. And, and are like the voice. Are, and a lot of times I learned in softball, I, I got my voice in softball. And I learned a lot of times in our softball matches, we would win not only because of the way we played, but because we kind of, the way we jeered and the way we built us up vocally, the other team. Mm-hmm. So anytime we were in the dugout, we were doing these cheers. Oh, some of them are intimidating, some are funny, some are silly. And it's a, it's a ritual. Yeah. So I kind of, I harnessed my inner softball player. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and then they started and we made three rules and and they each would have time for a rebuttal. But the, the key rule we made to make the place safe for conflict is we told everybody else, you have to choose a side and you cannot stay in the middle. And that in this context was a revolutionary act because they had to be seen in front of their peers to be choosing. And so, um, Anyway, we played it out, and the, but the physical act of crossing, and then they had another chance to change their mind again, and a few people would stay in the middle, and at that point, everybody, like, they, they bought into the game. Um, so the few people who were trying to stay in the middle, their own colleagues were kind of, like, you know, pulling them by the collar and be like, you can't do that, you mm-hmm. can't do that, mm-hmm. and so we temporarily changed the norms for it to be safe to have conflict, even though the conflict was... It was intellectual, quote unquote. But if you go back to relationships, it was about identity. Mm-hmm. It was about power. It mm-hmm. was about interests. It was about misperceptions, perceptions, and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. It was about patterns of interaction. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we let them choose. We had a final panel of judges to decide in that game. And then we closed it. And we helped them get back out of the ring. And we took the towels off. And we allowed these two people to get their you know, architecture identity back. And we closed the space. And they could go back to being civil. And what we allowed to create was in the context uh, of Mary Douglas was a temporary alternative world where we acted as the shamans. We used a context that was that matched theirs in the sense that it was a relatively masculine firm, quote unquote. We used a relatively masculine um, alternative world, which is like the world of wrestling. And, you know, if I had done the same thing, but I don't know, chosen a sport that they didn't see themselves in or weren't willing to go in at some level may not have worked as well. So you kind of have to know your context. And fortunately for me, they went with it. And it gives them a memory that we can do this. And so what happened? <laughs> so they, um, in that moment, they decided to, uh, the body one, which is actually surprising because um, the kind of the, the brain and the future of design was sort of the cool thing to do. And um, 
you know, they, they continued to have uh, more conversations down the line and eventually basically continued to be able to have conversations allowed where they disagreed. And they, at least at that moment, I haven't worked with them in years, um, they decided to double down and not lose the architecture side. So you kind of, um, you just loosened them up and got them so that they really could actually start really talking to each other more about what was going on rather than, which is so typical of so many, so many situations, people just skirting around the issue and never really getting into it at all. Yeah. And I think in this case, at some level, it was easier because uh, it was a it was a relatively clean intellectual argument about what you think about the future of a field and what is the data that you're perceiving and some of it is like what are your expected patterns of what might happen in the world versus also internally your values do we want to be part of a firm that is building and making more stuff in the world so there's definitely some values in there but but all that to say was that they they could see that there was benefit in actually discussing and having a clear debate where the ideas could actually flesh be fleshed out you know if i can um can because my job is always to pay a little bit of attention to the time flow here um can we uh connect this and move it to talking more about race? Is that something that you'd sure. like to do? Absolutely. Uh, and maybe continue the conversation about how to make the room safe for conflict? Um, <laughs> which, ah, so this is much more complicated. <laughs> yeah, and it's so, and it's such a big topic right now. It's such a big topic. And uh, I will say also, I just came back, um, I was doing a job in Ghana for the Ghanaian trade team and I did. A, I decided to take time to do a pilgrimage to the slave castles along the former Gold Coast, um, wow. which was so. Um, I mean, I've you know I, I've read a lot, experienced a lot, you know, educated. I'm a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, it was such an incredibly moving thing to do. I'm so glad I did it mm-hmm. um, and learned. So I was also in Benin, which is um, apparently it seems like maybe. Uh, Percentage-wise, the home of the the ancestral home of many uh, many African Americans. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm saying something that's true, but I think biologically, maybe a huge percentage of people came from what is now known as Benin. Hmm. So anyway, uh, that's a, an aside. But I'm really yeah want to want to hear how to make um, the room safe for conflict, particularly around something as charged as race. So conflict has elements in all relationships of, of power. And one of the reasons the architecture cage match, I think, worked relatively was in that context, people had relatively equal levels of power, mm-hmm. even if not from the same source of power. So it's not that everybody was, um, you know, the board chair, clearly, they had different roles. Um, but in that context, if I remember correctly, I think they all were partners, which in that form meant something. Um, and even if they had different roles, different sources of power, they kind of out, they, they, they balanced each other. So one may have been there for, you know, 20 years, but another person was actually very relevant because um, they deeply understood kind of a new form of design, even if they just joined the firm. And I'm assuming it's an American context, which of course... It's more low, low power distance. Anyway. All white. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so from the context of internally, I'm not saying it's good that they're all white um, or majority white. And, but even that, so that there, were, there wasn't a lot of coded language. I would just say that. And so they so could, really By that, you mean, I, I used the language context. It was very low context type of 
communication style? In other words, not they were paying attention to the specific words, not all the nonverbals. Is that what you're saying? Coded language? Um, I think that within their context, um, because there wasn't a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of meaning attributed to other parts of their identity because it was basically a monolithic group. Okay, I got you. They could focus on on the ideas, and the ideas themselves were not loaded with uh, forms of identity or meaning. So it was really a debate about within a field, can you like should we change how we operate, what our structure should be, what we are in the world, what is needed, and I think when you to move to the race conversation, I think, well, I think in ev- any context, particularly in an American context, race is always a, 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 an element, even in an all white group, in part because it's like, well, then why is, you know, why is this all white? Um, and um, I mentioned earlier to you, um, I recently read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, um, and I could not recommend it more. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of blew my mind. And, um, I think that within a racial context, sorry, I will say within a conflict in which people are choosing to explicitly focus on race. So race is not just, race is also the content, which is different than, you know, racial dynamics having, you know, in a school or in a, and um, I think in any type of context where the question is, how do you make something safe for conflict? I think that in a, with race, the definitions of safety depend on where you sit or stand and the definition of conflict depend on where you sit or stand. And power and power dynamics are both um, allocated at an individual level in a context, but also at a systemic and a historical level. And so making something safe for a race dialogue is complicated in the sense that, um, I mean, Robin D'Angelo wrote something that kind of blew my mind, which was she has a section in the book where she begins to analyze the kind of most common um, ground rules that facilitators use to make a space, quote unquote, safe. And there were many of the ground rules that I use, not even in race dialogues, but in a lot of different contexts. So like, don't judge, don't make assumptions, assume good intentions, speak your truth, um, respect. And she basically, she says, She's talking about it in the context of white fragility. I actually have it in front of me. I'll just read. I'll just read a couple of the sentences. She says, "White fragility is also evidenced in the need for so many white progressives to quote build trust before they can explore racism in workshops, support groups, and other educational forums." And then she talks about basically how building trust from a white perspective in a context of race is problematic. And she says the the reason why is because often the rules that we set. Um, within a context of power inequality, which which is what we have in a racial context, perpetuate the comfort of the dominant group, and which in the case of race is white. And so she says one of the um, one of the rules that she kind of picks apart is respect. And she says, I'm reading here. The problem with this guideline is that respect is rarely defined, and what feels respectful to white people can be exactly what does not create a respectful environment for people of color. For example, white people often define as respectful an environment with no conflict, no expression of strong emotion, no challenging of racist patterns, and a focus on intentions over impact. But such an atmosphere is exactly what creates an inauthentic, white norm-centered, and thus hostile environment for people of color. 
Super interesting. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm trying to, and now I'm trying to recall the, the Black Lives Matter um, ground rules um, and they're escaping me. But I remember the last one is proceed at the, the speed of trust. I love that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is, uh, oh gosh, what are they love? Uh, anyway, I can't, I can't recall them, but they're, they're very, uh, I've u- actually used them a number of times since I learned mm-hmm. them. But now if mm-hmm. I, if I wasn't afraid of messing up our recording, I'd search them on my computer, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So what's your experience with, you know, uh, dialogues. And I think from your book, you, you find it most contactful if you get two let's say identity groups, you don't, you don't have multiple identity groups. Uh, is that fair to say, Priya? I found that through sustained dialogue, we started to, again, it was a context of after 9-11 and it was extremely popular. So we'd, we'd have um, sometimes seven dial in the first year, I think it was four dialogue groups and we'd grow each year, seven dialogue groups. And at some point we'd have 16 dialogue groups going all at the same time. So 16 dialogue groups of 14 students each, who had committed to meet every two weeks for three hours at a time in person um, for the course of the year. And every dialogue group would have two moderators. And these moderators were trained um, first by Hal Saunders and Rhonda Sleem, and, and then eventually by those of us who became trainers. And one of the things that we, so every two weeks we'd have these moderator meetings. We'd come all together as mod, student moderators and say like, what happened? How did it go? How did the curriculum go? You know, what are the themes? And we'd notice the majority of the groups were multi, multiracial. And every year we'd have one or two kind of experiment groups that had dyads. So we had a Jewish Arab group and we had a black white fraternity group, or maybe it was white, black, Greek group. I think it was uh, men and women. And those were the, um, there were at the time are some of our strongest facilitators because we were, they were also the kind of um, highest risk groups for us as an organization and to kind of go so close to the heat, you know, you kind of turn up the, the focus of the relationship and week after week, they'd be the ones that were the most on fire, the most excited, the most coming with kind of the most serious conflict, but con- the highest attendance rates um, and really feeling like they were making groundbreaking conversations in both groups in part because there was an ability to focus without apology on a specific historical line. So what happens in a, in, a, in a group that's multicultural is that, yes, well, you have the Latino perspective or the Indian perspective or the, um, or the South Asian perspective or the, you know, whatever it is, the white, white European perspective. Um, as soon as you kind of start going long on, on some specific issue, um, it's difficult to have everybody be involved. And at some level, you kind of have to jump to another issue. Otherwise, if you're talking about, you know, Jewish black relations or Korean black relations or um, white privilege, the conversation can't go too deep because of all of the different perspectives that people are bringing to it. And so it's wide, but it's not deep. And so one of the things we found was, again, what, you know, the first chapter of my book is, is know why you're really gathering, mm-hmm. right? Know your purpose and make that purpose specific and disputable. So one of the things I believe is that if people don't disagree with people, if there aren't some people who disagree with your purpose, you're not, you don't have a purpose. You're, you, you need to really have a there there. Actually, can you remind me what you mean by that? Uh, disputable? Yeah, I think that um, to, and this is really to have, like, if your purpose is to have a, a 
a transformative gathering. Um, well, uh, so what I mean by disputable is that there's, there's a reason that's specific enough that people in your life, in your community may disagree with it. And it can be as simple as a wedding. So um, I think one of the dangers and one of the reasons many of our gatherings are diluted and vague is that because we have substituted category for purpose, we assume a specific form for a gathering and wedding and you know bachelor parties and baby showers are kind of the most ritualized forms that we have, the bat mitzvah, um, in an American context that are you know, broadly um, universal. Though you know all of these forms come broadly from white, white, and particularly wasp culture, um, so you ask the question: What is the purpose of your wedding? And usually, people kind of look at you and say, uh, <laughs> "To get married," and say, "Well, no, you can go to you know city hall for that." Why are you actually having a wedding? Why are you having a gathering? And um, is it to honor your parents? Is it to bring together a tribe of you and your partner? Um, is it to have a moment in your collective life where you stand up for your values instead of your inherited values? Do you use the word God in their ceremony? You know, do you use the rituals? I talk about this in the book. In the Indian, in the Hindu context of weddings, there's this moment of the seven pharaohs when you walk around a fire. And there's a movement in India right now where young women and men are looking at the actual language of the of the pharaohs of the scripts, and they're pretty misogynistic. I mean, um, and the implication of the assumption of the marriage, so the the woman, um, you know, says loyalty and physical loyalty to her to her husband, but the husband doesn't make such a vow. You know, the wo- woman. Yeah, is I was all- just at an Indian wedding. Actually, my niece just married, uh, who's uh, white Anglo-Saxon, married uh, someone who's Indian, and they they revised this. They did a version of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got to so, watch it. So that's yeah. awesome. So, so in that context, you know, part of the challenge is that on most in most families, at least in my family home, in my Indian family home, in. Um, in Delhi, that photo is sort of the photo that's plastered against the wall of many generations. Like that moment is kind of the moment. And so on one hand, you have this um, ritual that you want to be a part of that makes you a part of this line of your ancestors. On the other hand, it no longer matches your values. So how do you create a ritual that both honors your past, but is also um, has integrity with who you actually are? when it's witnessed by the people who are in your past in the same room. This is why I think what you're doing is so um, brilliant and deeply important because we are going through such massive social change uh, all over the planet. And uh, so many rituals are being called into question. So many social norms are being called. I mean, the gender issue alone, I think, is like a wildfire ripping through the planet. I mean, yes. everywhere. And I think it's very disorienting to people to figure out how, how do we do these things? How do we get married? How do we, yes. how do we do anything? Because yes. it's all uh, in question, actually. And I, mean, and I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the dangers of the moment we're in, which is the, how do we do this? And, you know, history goes in cycles. This is not the first time people have asked, how do we do this? You know, the entire Protestant movement and you know, all reform movements are, are basically moments in time when people ask, how do we do this? <laughs> what do we actually want this to look like so that the rituals match our modern beliefs? But we're in one of those moments now. And I think the danger, particularly in the U.S. Um, and, in, and in kind of in cultures that have uh, dominated an individualistic sense of values, is that we've thrown the, the baby of ritual out with the 
I'm going to mess up this, this metaphor with the bathwater, bathwater but basically what I mean is I think because the rituals no longer work for us, we haven't paused and think, well, let's just create a new ritual. We've just basically thrown out all specificity. So one of the things I found that I, I didn't fully realize, I kind of intuited before I wrote this book, but the force of the, you know, the, the need of research made me actually realize what was happening, which is I think many of the rituals that I studied that have power in them. And I, Jonathan Cook is an ethnographer I spoke with, and I love his definition of ritual, which is basically as simple as a, a, a sequence of steps that transforms a state from something to something. Mm-hmm. And that could even be your morning coffee. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a collective ritual. It can be your morning coffee transitions you from night state to morning state. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that a lot of the rituals that moved me, even if they were not my own, were the ones where there was a specific form because there was a specific community. So a Tamilian, you know, threading ceremony, a, um, an Indonesian tooth filing ceremony. I mean, even UVA tailgating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and the seersucker suits and, and beer, and we're not going to apologize. No, it's not non-alcoholic beer. It is beer, beer, you know, but, but that all of these rituals that people kind of love um, come from specific uh, monocultures. And as we've diversified, a good thing. As we've become multicultural, a good thing. As we've integrated genders, a good thing. In part, because we are, have been told that we should not assume that our rituals are everybody's rituals. And in part, because we actually haven't figured out how to communicate with each other in meaningful ways, because we share different assumptions and values and beliefs, our gatherings have become vague. So like a party is not, there's not a specific form. It's not sobremesa or it's not, you know, a salsa party. I mean, it could be if it's a theme, quote unquote, but it's basically people hanging around in the living room, you know, and a birthday party, some point a cake comes out, um, or, you know, the, the house party or frankly, the networking hour or the cocktail hour. It's all stuff that's broadly focused around things. And this is because things, you know, are harder to uh, offend one another. And my what I believe that was most needed right now is for us to pause and to think, how do we create modern ritual that when you're the host, you think about what is the need in my life or in this community? What is the purpose? It's specific and disputable. Who am I inviting? How do I allow them to understand what this thing is? And then they truly have a chance and choice to say yes or no, they want to come or not. In that book, I I have a a chapter on pop-up rules. And I feel very passionately about this because I think I'm glad you mentioned it because I this is one I love this I just love it's, this. <laughs> so so to me pop up rules are an opportunity for any host in any context to create temporary rules that can be totally fun um, for a gathering that you tell your guests ahead of time and you kind of see this with the rise of Jeffersonian dinners you know one conversation like plan on coming there's one conversation or House of Genius you go to this kind of brainstorming night and you're told ahead of time you can't talk about what you do you can't say your last name and how explicitly when you do that how explicitly are you trying to surface the you know the the etiquette rules that people aren't even aware you know that might have that probably come from culture mm-hmm. that it might be different and that people aren't even aware that they have yes. and that would then conflict with other groups different groups do it differently and i think you know one of the things i believe is um an invitation one of the reasons that our our gatherings are, I think, diluted and vague is because we've told, been told for multiple decades that if you get the things right in your gathering, everything else you know, will, will line up. So if you prepare the crudités for three days, as Martha Stewart tells us to in her party planning guide, right. like the chemistry will take care of itself. 
And I think, uh, and we've, we haven't been told how to actually prime our guests. So invitations have become a form of logistics, right? Like date, time, and place. No, no, no. Like give your gathering a name. What, you know, it's not a dinner party. What if you called the worn out mom's hootenanny? <laughs> it's a very, you know, it's a very interesting, it's a very different night. Right. Um, and so part of all of this is I think in your pop-up rules and in your invitation to begin, it's very difficult to have a pop-up rule and have something very specific if people have no idea about what they're being invited into. Mm-hmm. So the gathering begins when the, from the moment of discovery. This is at, I mean, in fact, this insight comes from my work in conflict resolution from the obsession that we take of all of the ways you prime your guests, you prime your people, you get them to buy into the social contract ahead of time. My mentor, Randa Slim, before we did a seven-year-long, six-year-long Arab-American-European dialogue, spent two and a half years traveling around the Middle East herself as a Lebanese-American, meeting with all of the potential participants, talking to them, having tea with their aunts to build trust before they even got in the room. And I, all I'm saying in this book is that we can actually learn something from this field because every gathering is an opportunity to create a temporary alternative world with temporary pop-up rules. And to go back to the pop-up rule versus etiquette, etiquette is basically a form of norms and rules that are invisible that you learn from childhood and are, you know, I talk in the book about cotillion. So cotillion is a sort of Southern charm school light <laughs> um, school that, you know, I did as a, as a young teenager, as an adolescent. I avoided and, it. <laughs> <laughs> smart. <laughs> and, um, and etiquette is basically an invisible way to join kind of the elite, quote unquote, the establishment. And um, I mean, I think Robin D'Angelo would have a field day analyzing cotillion, but um, pop-up rules are democratic. They are temporary and they are learnable. And what I mean by pop-up rules is you basically tell someone in advance, like, these are the rules. Be on time. If this is the kind of dinner where we want you on time, we want you to stay the night. And this is more true among, I think, millennials. To actually have to say that, when I say this to my parents, they, like, roll their eyes that you even have to say that today. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to come to my dinner, stay the whole time. But you do. Right. If you, you know, I don't want, you, no phones, one conversation. But the rules can be fun. Like, I one actually, of, like my, my daughter, um, she's uh, 26, and they have a rule when they gather, uh, she and her friends, they all have to put their cell phones on the table, and the first person to pick it up has to pay for the meal. <laughs> I love that. And that's the Tumblr rule. It, it was developed by an, a dancer in LA ah, that okay. wrote about it on his blog. It's a phone stack rule. Uh-huh. And, it's, and that's a beautiful example of how these rules can then spread, right? right? Your daughter doesn't know that that started with a blog, you know, seven and a half years ago and has spread. But that's what I'm talking about, reinventing modern ritual to match the needs of our communities in an explicit way that actually allows us to connect with each other when we're not the same. It's so powerful. And I, I have another, and I, again, I'm, we're running out of time and I want to ask you one other question. You might want to say something else too, but I, and it's a big question, but it's, it's, it's always, you know, how do you bound the system? How do you get the system in the room? You know, there's all different process techniques for like, I'm an open, I've been, you know, using open space, uh, technology for years, you know, the whole idea of whoever comes is the right people, you just let it happen like that. But but I think being more specific about figuring out who you get in the room, and particularly when there's conflict, actually getting the right people in the room is often the most difficult part of, um, in fact, I sometimes think if you get the right people in the room, it's such a huge part of of actually reaching success. 
I mean, yeah, you have to do the right things once you get them there, but getting them in there Mm -hmm. is very big. So I wanted you to speak to that if you could. I mean, I think the question about how do you bound the system perpetuates an assumption that the system is the right system. And I think it goes back to a question of power. So in the race context, you know, I think specifics help. One of the things that we found over time in sustained dialogue was when we first started this process, we basically believed what you just said, which is if you get the right people in the room, you know, you structure it well and you have the right moderators, it will take care of itself. And what we found was the dynamic that came up over and over and over again was that basically people of color spent about a year every time, like quote unquote, educating white students. And over and over again, at the end of it, students of color would be kind of exhausted and sometimes kind of angry and be like, I, I'm like, I know that if I don't do this, they're not going to have a student of color who's like willing to actually say this and tell them this, but I'm also exhausted. I'm tired of teaching. And one of the things, or there'd be some context where a conversation would say, would be something like, well, do, you know, does inequality really still exist? And no one in the room either either had the energy or had the data to say, well, yeah, I mean, if you actually look at, you know, black maternal mortality rates are actually worse in the US than they are in many, you know, many developing countries or, um, you know, reading off, you know, housing statistics or reading off, you know, actual institutional structural data. And so without the institutional structural data from outside of that room, actually myths and mindsets could actually be perpetuated. And so one of the things that we realized over time, and I said that at the beginning of our conversation, fields evolve. I mean, if you're thinking, if you're paying attention, if you're interacting with like real people and real data, your language will change. You, you should be integrating and you should be a learning organization, whatever your quote unquote organization is. And we realized that at some level, and there were white students who led this cause who said it actually makes a lot more sense to have white groups meet together first and do, you know, white privilege workshops so that they can come in with that lens and then actually have a, you know, a a different racial conversation than have basically what became white privilege workshops through dialogue. And I say all this to start in any type of intervention, you need to ask what your goals are and, um, and look at who the people in the room are and what is the both the, what is the power, the power that they have in a room with each other interpersonally is the least interesting form of power that you're working with. And if you come in and, and, and to actually do a power analysis, you also need to look at historically, um, financially, operationally, structurally, normatively, what are if these people are also symbols, not just individuals? How and what are the contexts that you're creating, and for what purpose? And how do you counterbalance those rules to be a what well, my language is a generous host to protect your guests, to connect your guests, and to temporarily equalize them mm. for a specific, agreed upon, legitimate, specific, disputable purpose? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, so we really are out of time and I know you're out of time. You got to, uh, is there anything, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure, I mean, I will put your, your bio up and, uh, is there anything that you want to say in closing? Um, or do you, maybe you just said it, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, as practitioners in this field, um, to, you know, be courageous and to be bold in, how you are gathering 
and particularly, I, you know, I don't know, people work in various contexts, um, when quote unquote clients aren't, you know, aren't sure that, you know, they're afraid for various reasons. I think one of the things that I found that works best is to, is to not only play the role of client in that context, but to play the role of educator, mm -hmm. to kind of speak to why it's important to have a specific disputable purpose and why it's important to exclude and why it's important to counterbalance certain norms. But most people don't think about this. And I think we are part of a field that elevates the invisible. And when you're in the field and in the operating space of elevating and helping to see and name the invisible, that's not just once people are in the room. It's also the priming process of taking whoever you're working with and helping them see that all the way through. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you, Priya, so much for your time. And please, listeners, uh, read her book. It's really fantastic. Uh, and um, I look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope you enjoyed that episode with Priya Parker, brilliant Priya Parker. Um, she'd like you to know that if you'd like to learn more about her work, you can go to PriyaParker.com and you can sign up for her newsletter. She also wanted to let you know that she is doing team trainings on the art of gathering for about 15 to 30 people. I think those are in-house trainings, so you can check her website or contact her for more about that. And stay tuned for some more exciting content. Um, always, we have great new ideas uh, that will be coming your way soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.